A few years back, there was a book from a Miss Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it was an interesting book. I honestly don't remember much about the book except for the main theme of the book. And what she was basically encouraging Christians is to really rethink the commands in the scripture for hospitality. She had uh, grown up in a community or lived in a community that was had some very negative, sinful aspects, but one of the things that she really appreciated about that community was just how hospitable, how in each other's lives they were. And so tonight, we are going to look at what Scripture says about this issue of hospitality, what is it, when we should do it, how should we do it, and what should we think about it. So in light of that, let's turn over to Third John, only one chapter and our, we'll focus in on verse 5 through 8, but we'll, for context, read beginning in verse 1. Greetings to Gaiaphas, the elder, to the beloved Gaiaphas, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and to be in health just as your soul prospers. I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithful whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have bore witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well, because they went forth for the sake of his name, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So in our passage here, Looking specifically at verse 5, John encourages Gaius to continue the faithful work that he's doing. And the faithful work that he's doing is for the saints and the strangers. Now, who are these strangers? Well, obviously, a stranger is somebody that you don't know, but these aren't just random people he's picking up off the streets, but rather these are Christian ministers that have gone out for the sake of the name. In other words, John is encouraging Gaius to become a man of peace. He's asking guys then to do what was done for him. Now, some of you may remember that term, a son of peace or a man of peace, and that comes from Luke chapter 10. So why don't you turn over to Luke chapter 10 and, and see what the apostle John is exhorting guys to continue this tradition. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So he takes seven, 70 men and he appoints them two by two. And he takes these two by two and tells them, I want you to go into these cities that I'm going to go. I want you to prepare the way. Doesn't that sound like John the Baptist? John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And so these 70, two by two, are to go out into these places and to prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 2, then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into the harvest. So before they go, they are to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into the harvest. And they themselves are about to fulfill the very thing they prayed for. You see that? By the way, we should definitely add this to our prayer list. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into the harvest. Jesus tells us to do that. We should be doing that. 
Verse 3 says, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, nor knapsack, nor sandals. Greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to be in this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house, whatever city you enter, and they receive you. Eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he appoints these 70, two by two, he sends them to the cities that he's going to go. He tells them to pray that the Lord will send out workers in the harvest, and then they fulfill that very prayer by going out into the harvest to grab in the harvest. And he tells them, I don't want you to take money. I don't want you to take sandals. I don't want you to greet people on the way. I don't want you to whine and dine and try to figure out where you're going to stay. But rather, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And when you get to those towns and to those places, you are to look for a son of peace. Now, this is a, this is a Hebraism. A son of peace is kind of like in Ephesians, it says a son of disobedience, a son of God, a son of wrath. This is the way that the Hebrews would describe somebody. Okay? So a son of peace is someone who's characterized by peace. A son of wrath is someone who's characterized by wrath. A son of disobedience is someone who's characterized for disobedience. So what does it mean that these are a son of peace? They're a son of peace because they have made fellowship with the Prince of Peace. Amen? The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, they are now characterized not no longer by hatred, but now by peace. It also could have the idea is that now they've made peace with the Prince of Peace. Now they are people of peace. Now they're not people of wrath anymore. Now they're not people of hatred anymore. They're people of love, and they are people of peace. So they're to go to these towns and look for a man of peace. And when they find that man of peace, from that man they were to receive their wages. And actually, interesting enough, this text is the text that is quoted later on in the pastoral epistles as referring to Scripture. So Luke was already written at that point, and the Paul quotes this text, a labor is worthy of his wages, to establish that pastors deserve to be paid, and quotes it as scripture. This is where we get that principle. And so what is the labor that the what is the pay that the labor is worthy of? Well, here it describes them as basically free room and board, food, drink, and shelter. Sometimes we tell our kids that your job is to do school. Your job is to learn. And it's true. And you know what your payment is? Free board, food, and drink. Some of you don't realize that, but one day you're going to realize that, and you're going to realize that your parents provided for you with free board, room, and drink. Because you're not getting that from anybody else. You're definitely not getting it from me. If you work, you are to. If you are to eat, you are to work. So their pay is that the man of peace is going to provide them a free place to stay. He's going to provide them food and drink. And they aren't freeloaders, they're just hanging around, but rather they are to go around and pronounce a blessing to that home. God will bless you, God will reward you in heaven. And they are, go, they are to go around and get busy preaching the gospel in that town and healing the sick. They're to, they're to do the work of the ministry. So the point of this is, all, is to say this. These ministers are not sent out as freeloaders to live off of other people, but rather to be ministered to and then to be recompensated by the people of God. The Word of God says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Pretty simple principle. If you don't work, you don't, you don't eat. 
No free handouts here. Right after that, in 2 Thessalonians, he says this, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So some of the people there were just living off others. They weren't working at all. They were just busybodies. And he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to work in quietness. Stop complaining. Just work. Work is good. And to eat their own bread, not eat the bread of others. But the ministers here are not eating the bread of others, but they're receiving wages as a compensation for what they do. So again, notice what is happening here. Notice also that this isn't just to go out to some random towns and random places. This is a unique command and a unique circumstance. And these ministers are to go out into the towns of Israel, not the towns of Gentiles. So the man of peace is someone who is born again, someone who is saved there, and they are to recognize that this person is going out for the sake of the name, and they're to provide hospitality for that person. That is what the disciples received, and now that is what John is telling Gaius to continue that tradition. When he sees people going out for the sake of the name, he is to provide them room and board and to provide for them. So this establishes a general principle as well as we see that this Old Testament reality of being a man of peace and showing hospitality, you also have this in the transitional space of the the Gospels, is a continuing principle that continues on all the way through the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament or a Gospels idea, but it continues on. And from this, we should just, in passing, real quick note that there's a principle of continuity. And that principle of continuity is this. If the Bible teaches something moral in the Old Testament, we should assume that it continues on without some kind of explicit command abrogating that reality. There's an assumption that the commands, the instructions of God continue on unless it is abrogated. So just as we see commands in the Old Testament about showing hospitality and loving people, it's going to continue on unless the New Testament absolutely negates it. I recently quoted Psalm 1, exhorting people to not walk with the wicked, not stand with the wicked, and not sit with them. And someone said to me, that's Old Testament. I'm thinking, what do you mean? (laughs) This is God's word. This isn't changed. And then I showed them a New Testament passage. Bad company corrupts good morals. And they said, now I will receive it. This is very distorted thinking. We don't need the New Testament to repeat the commands of the Old Testament. What we need is the New Testament to abrogate God's truth. They say that this is no longer something that we should be doing, like circumcision, for example. The command to circumcise in the Old Testament is explicitly abrogated into the New Testament, and that's why we don't do it. But an explicit command to abrogate, we would assume that it continues. I'll give you a few examples of this. Where in the New Testament are we instructed to discipline our children with a rod? Where do you find it? You don't find it anywhere. You know where you find it? Proverbs. Great book. What about commands for explicit commands about defining sexual immorality? Where do you find that? We've been preaching about that in Leviticus. That's where we find those instructions. What about your need for ongoing Sabbath rest? Where do we find that explicitly? Again, we shouldn't need an explicit command. We should recognize unless the New Testament abrogates something, we should assume continuation and continuity. But I digress. So this brings us to the principle of hospitality. What is hospitality and what does God expect from us? Back to the beginning of the sermon, I spoke about Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. What is this concept? We've been saved not by good works, Ephesians 2.8, but we've been saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10. And part of that good works is hospitality. So, so what is it? 
Well, the word hospitality comes from two Greek words. There's a Greek word named xenos, which means a guest, or it means a stranger. Some of you may know English better than I do. There's some kind of, this word plays off, it's the word that refers to a fear of strangers. Some of you may know that word. But the Greek word is xenos. And then the Greek has many words for beloved or friend, but one of the words is philos. And so if you combine those two words, philosenos is a friend of strangers or a friend of guests. That is what hospitality means in the Greek. The Greek word hospitality means a friend of strangers or a friend of guests. And so this concept is what we should be. We should be lovers or friends of strangers and lovers and friends of the guests in our home. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 13. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Who knows the rest of that passage? What will everybody see in you and say, you've been with the Lord. You've been with Jesus. You remember when the apostles were preaching and they said, these men are unlearned. They don't have their PhD. They didn't go to our seminaries. How is it that they know so much scripture? How is it they know so much truth? Remember that passage in Acts? And they said, they must have been with Jesus. Remember that? Well, the world should look at you and see something in you and say, you must have been with Jesus. Jesus must be in you. And what is that? If you have love for one another. That is how the world will see that Jesus is living in you, that you have been born again, that you are a disciple of Christ. And so a very practical way of showing your love for one another is to show hospitality for those who bear the name of Christ. MacArthur in his commentary points this out. He says, Hospitality was not merely a cultural obligation, but even more a Christian duty. It is one very necessary and practical expression of that love that should mark the fellowship of believers. Hospitality is not simply a cultural obligation. Some of you may or may not know this, but hospitality is a big deal in the Eastern world. It's a very big deal. You're supposed to be hospitable. In fact, there's been cases where you've had uh, special forces and, and people like this running around in the Middle East, and they've been lost, and they've had to rely on the people to board them and show hospitality. And these people, even though they're naturally enemies, this concept of hospitality was so built in that if you ask for hospitality, there's been actual cases where they have taken in special forces people and refused to hand them over to the Taliban because of this principle of hospitality. It's a very, very big deal in the Middle East. But it's not just a cultural obligation. It's a Christian duty. So regardless of whether you're Middle Eastern, whether it's a big deal, or you're Western, you don't care about it, as Christians, we don't have that option. We care about it because it's in God's Word. It's a scriptural duty. So let's look at uh, some biblical examples of hospitality, recognizing that, again, this is not just a cultural idea, such as just an interesting fact. But before we do that, let's consider what hospitality would have meant in the ancient world, and then we can figure out how we can apply it today. Because hospitality was a little bit different in the ancient world than it is today. Why? Most of you probably don't need to find random Christians when you travel. Anybody travel, get in your car, go somewhere, drive across the United States, Right? When you're booking trips, you're probably not thinking, I wonder if there's a good Reformed Baptist church there, and maybe I can hook up with the pastor. Maybe some of you do that, hallelujah. But most of you, probably not. Most of you, if you're younger, you might be doing Airbnb, you're older, you might just go to a hotel. Right? I mean, this, is how, this is how we plan trips. We plan trips by figuring out how to get there, either airplane, car, bus, whatever, train, and then we map out the hotel, and, and that's how we do it. Well, you've got to understand that that isn't how 
travel was around the ancient world. Number one, travel around the ancient world was, number one, very dangerous. Travelers were vulnerable to attack. This is because they were a long way from home. The roads weren't very safe. And then you couldn't call 911. There was no 911. There was no cell phones. You were just traveling all there, all by yourself. People would see you or not from around here, and they would potentially take advantage of you. And to give you some examples, some biblical examples of people traveling and bad things happening, maybe you can think of some examples. You remember what happened to the angels when they went to Sodom? They were travelers, right? Two men. Nobody knows these people. Nobody's going to help them. Let's get them. This was the mentality of the world. You can think of some awful examples that happened in the book of Judges, which I won't reference, but you can think about that ha- what happened to the concubine's wife in the town of Benjamin. You can think about one of the favorite parables of Jesus. Remember the Good Samaritan? What was he doing? He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was robbed and beat and left for dead. So the point is that travel was very dangerous in the ancient world. And so you had to, you needed protection when, when going there. What about inns? What about motel inns, Airbnb, that kind of thing? There wasn't very many inns. They didn't really exist that often. So the ones that did exist also were full of debauchery, prostitution, drugs, and all kinds of evil. So you didn't want to go there. Okay, this is that really, really shady motel that all kinds of weird stuff happens there. And yeah, that was like this. And you're thinking, ah, I'd rather not go there. So the inns were not good. There weren't that many of them. So what was someone to do in this situation? Well, they would be at the mercy of a godly person. They literally just had to travel in hope somebody would see them and invite them into their house. And so that's what hospitality was. It was an intimate, costly, and possibly dangerous extension of kindness and love for someone in need. You can just imagine somebody's traveling. This is what Lot did, remember? He was walking home, and all of a sudden he sees some strangers. He thinks, I better not leave them here. Because if I leave them here, they might not end up well. And so it was a costly intimate, and possibly dangerous. Because guess what? You don't know these people from Adam, do you? That's why they're in danger, because nobody knows them. It means you don't know them. So inviting them to your house was potentially dangerous for you. But it was still a cultural and Christian obligation. So that's what hospitality is. It is showing kindness and love for somebody when they are in need. And the New Testament brings this out in several passages. First John 317 says, but whoever has the world's good and sees his brother needs and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in such a person? And in James chapter 2, it says, if a brother or sister is naked, destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what is the profit? So the modern application for hospitality is, one, if we see somebody in need, just like in days of old, you see a stranger show up in your town, you need to do something to help them. And that something might be intimate, costly, and possibly dangerous. You see that? Just as if you were Lot, and somebody comes to your town and you invite them to your house, that would be costly, intimate, and possibly dangerous. So too, we today, that probably is not going to happen. You're probably not going to just be driving home and inviting random people in your house. It's a different context. But the application today would be seeing somebody in need and doing something intimate, possibly costly, and doing something to relieve what is going on there. Now, when I say possibly dangerous, again, use your common sense. Most of you have survived up to this point, so continue to use your common sense. If they look really shady, probably don't invite them in your home. But still, there's a principle here that we should be willing to go out on the limb to help people. 
Okay, the second aspect of hospitality in the ancient world is the same as today. Namely, you invited someone into your house to entertain them for fellowship, for food, to have a good time. So it's just an act of kindness. Now, this act of kindness and an act of generosity isn't just a kind thing to do, but it's actually God's command. The Bible tells you you are to be hospitable. That's a command from God. Here's a few examples. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Share with the saints who are in need. Practice hospitality. Hebrews 3, uh, 13, uh, 13, 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Of course, referring back to Abraham. It's a description of a godly woman. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it describes these godly widows. You're not supposed to take an ungodly widow but to take a godly widow. If she needs help, you know, to take her into church and to provide for her. And here's a description of the godly woman. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has, was diligently followed every good work. So the picture of a godly woman is one who has lodged strangers a woman of hospitality. And for you men, you say, that's woman's work. This is actually the description of a godly man too. It's not just that women are to be hospitable, but men are as well. And we see this as one of the requirements to be an elder, which an elder is just a requirement to be a godly man, to be an exemplar. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, an overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. So it's a requirement for godly women. It's a requirement for godly men. It's a requirement for all the saints. Be hospitable. Pursue hospitality. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, we read this. It's really interesting. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. This whole earth is going to burn up, burn up and be destroyed. Christ is coming back. You should live in light of eternity. And so what does that look like? It looks like, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. That makes sense. And above all things, show fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So in light of eternity, in light of the fact that we are at the end of days, we should be serious, we should be watchful in our prayers, we should show fervent love for one another, we should be hospitable, and we should be hospitable without grumbling. Now, what is hospitality with grumbling? Oh, I have to invite you over. That's what hospitality, being hospitable with grumbling looks like. Oh, you're eating my food. I want that food. It costs me money. I don't want... That is grumbling. And the very fact that it says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling, you know what that implies? In the flesh, we might be naturally inclined to grumble because we're selfish, because we don't want to be intimate with people, that it's costly. And we don't want to necessarily do it. But we are commanded to do it. Be hospitable with one another without grumbling. Interesting enough, when in the book of Job, everybody remembers Job. Job was being accused by people of being wicked and evil and vile. And in the book of Job, he says, no, I'm not wicked. I'm not evil. I'm not vile. And he describes himself in this way in Job chapter 31. He says, haven't the members of my household said, who is there who has not had enough to eat at Job's table? No stranger had to spend the night on the street, for I opened my door to the traveler. So he's saying, you guys are saying I'm wicked, 
But who in my household, who knew me, who didn't eat from my table? What an amazing statement. I want you to think about that for a second. What an incredible statement that Job could say. Who was close to me who did not eat at my table? No stranger has spent the night on the street. I've opened the door to the traveler. Something to consider. Can we all say that statement? Nobody has not been able to eat at my table. Again, not saying that we have to say that, but it's certainly interesting that he did say that and certainly convicting. So God takes hospitality very seriously. He commands it throughout the Bible. He tells us all over the place that we should be hospitable. In fact, I want you to turn over to Malachi chapter 3. I want to show you something. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, he's condemning the Jews, and he's telling them how wicked they are. They're vile, they're wicked, and he's going to pass swift judgment against them. And he says this, I will pa- I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the, idolat- the adulterers, against the perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. It's, ama- it's amazing to find that. I mean, we all know that God be against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the perjurers, against those who exploit their workers. But in this very list, he also says he's against those who turn away an alien, namely those who are not hospitable. Why? Because they do not fear me. They walk in their own ways. They do what they want. They don't want to be hospitable, so they aren't hospitable. Why would people not want to be hospitable in yesterday's world? Because it was intimate because it was costly, and because it was potentially dangerous. It was just a whole lot easier to walk by that stranger and say, not my problem. And he says, I'm against you, because you don't fear me. You don't do what I want you to do. Time is passing us quickly. I don't have time to get into this, but let me give you some quick examples of some acts of hospitality throughout the Bible. You remember the road to Emmaus, when the two disciples were traveling and were sad, about Jesus' death, and they don't recognize Jesus. And he runs up to them, and he starts talking to them. And they're having a good conversation about the scriptures. And they're about to go off to their house, and he's going to continue. And they say, no, come. Come with us. Come and eat. Spend time with me at my house. They just met this guy. They say, you come and dine with me. They didn't know it was Jesus. And when he broke the bread, he was revealed to them. Think about the Shudamite woman in 2 Kings that the man of God would constantly go there and they would constantly provide for him and fellowship with him, so much so that they built a little room from him. They used to call this a prophet's chamber, a guest room just for the prophet. You can think about Zacchaeus. He hosted Jesus. Mary and Martha. You remember the scene with Mary and Martha and the conflict they had over hospitality of hosting Jesus and his disciples. Simon the Pharisee. Lot with the two angels in Sodom. Paul with Lydia. As soon as Lydia was converted, she hosted Paul. The Bible is full of examples of hospitality. It shows us how the people of God should be. We should be hospitable. We should be people who invite people over to our house, that we eat with them, that we sit with them, that we love them, that we get to know them. This is what we should do. This is God's command for us. And we have to do an inventory. I remember when I was reading that book that I read that book and I thought, this is a lady who's really into hospitality and trying to push it on to the rest of us. Maybe that was true about the book, maybe not. But this isn't me really into hospitality trying to push this onto you. This is the word of God really into hospitality telling you, be hospitable, pursue hospitality, do this. This is what it looks like to love one another. Now, not only are we commanded to be hospitable, but praise the Lord that we serve a hospitable God. 
Now I want to show you in Scripture where God does this very thing to us. He tells us to invite the stranger in, and he invited you in. He tells us to have fellowship with the undeserving, and he does that to us. We see this picture in Genesis chapter 14. You remember when Abraham had just got done with the battle? And there's a Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, who brings out bread and wine and fellowships with Abraham. In Exodus chapter 24, you have Moses, Aaron, Nabat, and Abihu, and the 70 elders. They go up, and they see the God of Israel on the mountain. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of people. They beheld God, and they ate and drank with God. The chief leaders went up on the mountain in fellowship and ate with God. He did not kill them. In 1 Corinthians, we just did the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about that those who take of the blood and take of the bread are in communion with the body of Christ. And then it parallels this with people who eat food at the altar of demons and says that they are in fellowship with demons. It says you cannot be in fellowship with demons and be in fellowship at the Lord's table. And so just as people who were in idolatrous practices were communing, dining, eating with demons, so too we today, as we ate the Lord's Supper, were communing with Christ. It's not a bare symbol. Just as if you went to a temple and worshiped a false god, it's not a bare reality. There are spiritual forces there. And so too Christ is among his church. And we eat and we commune with the living God even today in the Lord's Supper. And not only that, this is what God invites us to. God is not stingy. God doesn't say, this is my stuff, my food, my money. But rather, he sets out a table. He produces a banquet. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, come to me, hear, and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. You see the picture here? He sets out all of this food, all of this wine. It says, come and eat. And you think, what is it going to cost me? What strings are attached? And he says, there is no strings of attached. It won't cost you anything. Come and receive the abundance that I have provided for you. Come and delight yourself in my abundance, and I will give you the everlasting covenant, the sure mercies of David. This is what the gospel is. It's an invitation to dine and commune and to be in fellowship with the living God. And it costs you nothing. Absolutely nothing, completely free. It is a free offer for all to receive. Come and eat from the table of Christ. And not just that. Not only are we currently spiritually in the heavenly places with Christ, communing with him, eating from his great banquet, but we will in physical reality one day in glorified bodies actually see and behold God and dine with him in the new Jerusalem in the banquet of the Lord. We see this in Isaiah chapter 25. It's one of my favorite passages. Why don't you turn there? Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. We have this glorious picture of our future banquet with the Lord in physical bodily form. He says this in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He shall swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil spread over all of the nations. He will swallow up death 
forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from every face and the reproach of the peoples he will take away from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord that we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in that salvation. This is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the Lord. And one day on that mountain, he's going to have a feast of this rich food, this well-refined wine full of the bone and the marrow. And he's going to swallow up every tear, every sadness, and fill you with everlasting joy. This is the hospitable God that we serve, the God who's been communing with his people from the beginning, the God who invites you now through salvation, and the God who promises this amazing banquet for you. We have a hospitable God who invites the stranger and makes the alien his friend. Think to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but he has made alive in Christ Jesus. Then right after that, he says, you who were formerly strangers to the covenants of the promises, you were lost. He has brought you near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He invites you to his banquet. Come and enjoy his banquet. So this is what we are to do. We are to be hospitable just like our God is hospitable. We are to find our brethren. We are to find the stranger. We are to find the minister, and we are to help them and provide for them. Practically speaking, this looks like for most of us, we are to pray for our missionaries. We are to support our missionaries, and we are to send them out. And we are to just to do this for each other. The song that we sung today actually comes from this verse. I think, Neil, you did that on purpose. And we see that right here in the passage in verse 7, 3 John, verse 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. We are to do this for them because they went out for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that, they may, that we may become fellow workers of the truth. I'll be brief here. These people, they have gone out for the sake of the name. They didn't go out for their own glory. They didn't go out for their own riches. They went out in order to spread the glory of Jesus Christ. I can't do that. Many of you can't do that. We have families. We have responsibilities. In our life situation, in our calling, we can't go out for the sake of the name, right? But we can help along those who can. And we can do that by praying for them. We can do that by supporting them. We can do that by doing all that we can. And by doing that, we can become fellow workers of the truth. You see that? We can't all be in Papua New Guinea. We can't all be in Afghanistan, Iraq, and all these places around the world but we can help those who need our help to get them there. And by doing this, we become fellow co-workers and co-laborers of the truth. This is the exact opposite of what was told us not to do in 2 John. 2 John talks about being hospitable and taking care of the workers of evil. And by doing that, we support the workers of evil. And it says you become a co-laborer of evil. Don't do that, but rather be a co-laborer for that which is good. Find somebody that you can help. Find some ministry that you can support. Find someone who's doing something for the cause of Christ that you want to be part of, and you can be a part of that. Jesus says that if you bless a prophet, you receive the, the reward of the prophet. You get to be a part of spreading God's truth by co-laboring and supporting those who went out for the sake of the name. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that even though we can't always... Go out for the sake of the name necessarily, uh, at least literally and physically like some of us can do, that we can still be a part of this great work. Lord, help our hearts to be knit together for the sake of your name, wanting to spread your gospel, wanting to be used by you 
to spread the fragrance of Christ and to bring the obedience of the nations. Lord, help us to be convicted and to really think about what the Bible says, not what Western culture says, not what our preferences say, but what the Bible says about being hospitable. Help us to be truly hospitable, to care for aliens, care for people we don't know, and even those that we do know, that we would be willing to invite and to love and to cover a multitude of sins as they come over. And we know that if you get close to people, you will see their sin. Let's cover it with grace and love. Help us to be hospitable like you yourself are hospitable to us. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.